back let's talk a bit about science starting with meteorology well a very brief item on meteorology which is that our season to date rain totals locally are now above 12 inches thank god at the end of february we stood at something like five inches and looked headed for a potential drought but we've gotten a lot of rain here in march and april and it may save us in the year to come we will of course continue to cover the story of water in california which is I'll be our number one political story. But uh, when it comes to science, the one thing I just cannot resist, and you may feel the same way, dear listener, is stories that completely change conventional wisdom. One piece which I cannot put my (laughs) fingers on at the moment talks about how viruses appear to be all over the human body. Viruses coexisting with the bacteria that they prey upon. And other types of viruses. This could be a a revolutionary change in how we think of the outsides of our bodies. But that story will have to wait till I find the piece, and we'll have to focus instead on what's going on inside of our bodies, inside of our gut. The human gut, of course, technically is the outside world. It's a long 30-foot tube that starts with a mouth, ends in an anus, and is basically outside of the body. We'll start trying to work out the ecology of what's going on inside of our guts. There was a fascinating story we talked about last year about how guts seem to fall into three types. Well, someone got the bright idea of examining or questioning, I guess you'd say, conventional wisdom about the fact that uh, the fetus is living in a sterile world and it's protected from the countless bacteria that fill its mother's gut. Apparently not. Researchers in Spain decided to test uh, the idea that the human gut in a fetus, is sterile. They, uh, they took mice and labeled bacteria with a genetic marker and fed milk containing those bacteria to eight pregnant mice. The mice then had their offspring delivered by cesarean section in a sterile environment. That took place one day, about one day before they were due to give birth. Each newborn mouse had its meconium, which in other words, its first feces, what's, what's gathered in the gut, and is normally passed in the first few hours of life, collected at the same time. The team found the labeled bacteria in the pup's meconium, suggesting the bacteria had transferred from the mother's gut to that of the fetus during pregnancy. Now, how that takes place is an interesting question. But the evidence is now mounting that whatever that process is, it may also be happening with we humans. Researchers, again in Spain collected and froze the meconium of babies from 20 women. They then removed the outer layers of each sample to rule out bacteria picked up after birth, then looked for bacterial DNA markers. The team not only identified bacteria in the baby's meconium, which before this time, of course, has long been thought to be sterile, they found bacterial communities so developed they seemed to fall into two categories. About half the samples appeared to be dominated by bacteria that produced lactic acid, while the other half mostly contained a family of so-called enteric bacteria, like E. coli. Now this has some pretty big uh, health implications for we humans because our microbiomes, they are basically 
biological or bacterial ecosystems that we have inside of us um, has a lot to do with our health. After doing these measurements, the Spanish team checked the health of infants at one year of age and then again at four years of age, and were surprised to find that the infants born with more lactic acid-type bacteria were significantly more likely to develop asthma-like symptoms. On the other hand, those born with more enteric bacteria ecosystems were at greater risk for eczema. These findings need to be confirmed, but they suggest that a pregnant woman can influence the makeup of her baby's microbiomes before the baby's born. And uh, that could be a good time to do so, since the first bacteria to colonize the gut are thought to influence the bacterial species that follow. And we would add that having the right kind of bacteria in your gut is worth working for. Noted new scientist, altered microbiomes have been linked to a host of disorders, from irritable bowel syndrome to obesity. They could even have an effect on personality. This is some pretty revolutionary stuff. Uh, we are taught in medical school that, uh, fetus, that the fetus is sterile. The notion that the gut development is influenced by maternal bugs will come as a shock to just about everyone. It's a new way of thinking about human disease. Doggone it, we're going to try and talk about a little bit more about that in the future. We would refer you to the article on this in the April 14th issue of New Scientist. And speaking of New Scientist magazine articles about gut bacteria, and how's that for a segue, we'd also refer you to the March 31st issue, talking about medicine that makes you fat. A piece by Jessica Hamzaloo notes that by altering gut flora, antibiotics could promote obesity and damage our immune systems. Now, of course, we talked about feedlots all over America, pumping antibiotics through animals because it makes them grow faster. Well... Apparently, the same thing may affect human beings. We hadn't given this proper thought. Article notes that antibiotic use has been rising for the past 70 years. They're now often prescribed as a precaution for illnesses when the cause has not been confirmed as bacterial. <laughs> Boy, as a primary care physician, I can tell you, that sure is the truth. Well, someone got the bright idea of investigating whether our overuse of antibiotics could also play a part in our rise of obesity. A study by Martin Blazer, a microbiologist at New York University, uh, examining how infant mice responded to low doses of penicillin. These were doses that mimic those given to farm animals. Turned out after 30 weeks, the penicillin-fed mice were between 10 and 15% bigger and twice as fat as drug-free mice. When the team looked at the mice's gut bacteria, they found that the antibiotic-fed mice had a different complement of bugs to the untreated mice, which is what you'd expect. Evidently, low doses of antibiotics had seemingly shifted the balance of certain gut microbes, reducing the number of lactobacillus, which is considered a, quote, good bacterium, which is linked to a lower risk of cancer recurrence. To confirm that the mice owed their supersizing to an altered gut microbiome, the group turned to germ-free mice, which are bred in a sterile environment and have no gut bacteria. Within five weeks of being given gut bacteria from the mice that had been fed antibiotics, the once germ-free mice were 35% larger than mice with a regular microbiota. Peace notes that in the initial experiment, the biggest mice were those that had been started on antibiotic treatment from birth. 
suggesting that gut flora may be most vulnerable to disruption in the earliest moments of life. And the piece notes that antibiotics used to treat children may also have a detrimental effect on their immune systems. In a separate study on mice, the team mimicked the short courses of higher-dose antibiotics that young children tend to receive for infections, then investigated whether these pulsed doses were having any effect on the mice's helper T-cells. They found that the levels of chemicals emitted by those cells were significantly lower in antibiotic-fed mice, which of course suggests that their immune systems may have become compromised. The article goes on to note that although no one yet knows why certain groups of bacteria may affect weight, Dr. Blazer says we might expect young children exposed to antibiotics to gain weight like the mice. And indeed, similar effects have already been spotted in humans. Evidently, Teresa Oslev and her colleagues at Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark followed the development of 28,000 babies and found that those who were given antibiotics from the first six months of life were more likely to be overweight at age seven, even if their mother had a healthy weight. Article notes that uh, Martin Blazer is not the only one concerned about this. They quote Christine Wiley at the University of Washington in St. Louis, Missouri, saying, it could well be true that antibiotics are contributing to soaring obesity rates. Referring to the mice studies, noting that the pulses of antibiotics really reflect what children are given in real life. In an accompanying sidebar, magazine notes that uh, in addition to what Martin Blazer is doing at New York University, Cecil Lewis and colleagues at the University of Oklahoma in Norman are examining fossilized feces to see what they can learn. They've collected ancient feces from soil in caves and directly from the intestines of mummies from North and South America. The samples were between 1,400 and 3,000 years old. The team extracted DNA before comparing its bacterial makeup to known microbiomes of modern Americans, rural African children, primates, including chimps, and the Tyrolean Iceman Otzi, who lived about 5,000 years ago. Lewis's team was able to piece together microbiomes for each of the samples, saying they do appear to be different. Surprisingly, the ancient feces have more bacterial DNA in common with those of non-human primates and children living in rural Africa than they do with modern Western gut microbiomes. Said Lewis, my first hypothesis would be that chlorinated water and antibiotics fundamentally changed human microbiomes. This, ladies and gentlemen, is an area that warrants further investigation. Noted new scientists in editorial, we can't do without antibiotics. The diseases they combat are life-threatening and immediate, while any risks they pose are still poorly understood. Clearly, we need to think hard about how we use them. Certainly, we should stop handing them out like medicinal candy to humans or as dietary supplements to animals, lest they lose their efficacy. Of course, I've complained bitterly on this program for years about the fact that uh, although doctors try to conserve antibiotics, uh, using them only when they need them, you can go down to an animal feedlot and find that everything out there is being shoveled antibiotics through their guts to make them get bigger and fatter faster. Thankfully, in a piece by Gardner Harris in the New York Times on April 12th, it was noted that the FDA may finally step in to do something about this. 
Farmers and ranchers, for the first time, will now need to get a prescription from a veterinarian before using antibiotics in farm animals in hopes that more judicious use of the drugs will reduce the tens of thousands of human deaths that result each year from the drug's overuse. Note of the piece, the Food and Drug Administration announced the new rules Wednesday after trying for more than 35 years... Just let that sink in. After trying for more than 35 years to stop farmers and ranchers from feeding antibiotics to cattle, pigs, chickens, and other animals simply to help the animals grow larger. Now, isn't the same FDA that's claiming that cannabis has no legitimate medicinal use, even though it does? But uh, this, this piece is worth quoting. It notes that at least 2 million people get sick and an estimated 99,000 die every year from hospital-acquired infections, the majority of which result from such resistant strains. It is unknown how many of these illnesses and deaths result from agricultural use of antibiotics, but about 80% of antibiotics sold in the United States are used in animals. And by the way, the claim is made that this is done to keep animals healthy. Well, it's not being done on a case-by-case basis to supply antibiotics to sick animals. They just put it in the feed willy-nilly and have at it. The piece notes that in 1977, the FDA announced it would begin banning some agricultural uses of antibiotics, but the House and Senate Appropriations Committees, dominated by agricultural interests, passed resolutions against the ban and the agency retreated. Peace notes that in the years since, the issue of antibiotic overuse in animals and drug resistance has become one of the leading public health concerns worldwide. Yes, my understanding is that other nations do not permit this kind of use, misuse, more properly, of antibiotics. We'll talk about that more in the future, of course, but just about the end of the show, we need something lighter to end with. All right, in the minute we have left, we would note that if you like surfing and hate crowds... There's some good news. piece from The Economist, March 17th, notes that uh, surfing is growing fast, with the number of surfers worldwide increasing from 26 million to 35 million over the last 10 years. The growing demand for waves means that overcrowding will get worse unless more waves can be found. Well, using sophisticated meteorological research, they've now found that uh, probably the great future of surfing may lie on the African coastline. It apparently abounds with the right kind of waves, and at many of the beaches, there are no surfers at all. The piece notes that the Black Star Surf Camp, established in 2006 at Busua Beach in Ghana, has grown fast thanks to visitors from America, Europe, and Asia. For those wanting even more privacy, there are plenty of good waves on the Ivory Coast and in Senegal. This correspondent will do his best to continue to report on the art of trying to learn surfing after the age of 50. I do believe it can be done, but I have yet to prove it. Although I think I'm going to concentrate more on Hawaii and Costa Rica than Senegal and the Ivory Coast. At least for now. (laughs) This program was produced by Edward McMillan, as they all are. We'll see you next week on our annual Pledge Drive show, and we are counting on you, dear listener, to do what you can to keep this station going. We will try and raise next week's program $1,000. That is our target. Please do what you can to help us meet it. Listen to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. See you soon.